congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we think about building our faith. Building our faith. And as I think of building, my thoughts necessarily go to that new apartment complex going in over there in St. Helens uh, that will just totally hamper the traffic uh, over there in Gable and coming out of uh, you know Walmart and all that. Anyway, they're, they're building that big complex back there, and as you drive by, you can see the different material they have, the lumber and the, the bricks and whatever else, huge you know, reams of rebar and you name it. They have it all back there, and they, have, they need all their materials to build. Right? They're not going to be able to build these apartments, or you're not going to be able to build much of anything without the materials uh, you need to build the thing you're trying to build. And that goes for our faith as well. God calls us to, and we're called from the Scripture, to build our faith. In fact, to make our calling and election sure from this very passage. And as we build our faith together, we want to distinguish two things, at least from the beginning, as we get into it, which is based, you know, knowing God at all in a saving way, and then building that knowledge. Right, there's a kind of basic knowledge of just knowing God and, and, and relating to Him, not just, not just the basic notion you talk to somebody and they say, well, you know, there are stars out there, and I look at my fingernails sometimes, and I trip out, and I think, there must be a God to have these stars in my fingernails. You know, and you think, well, true. You know, I, I, I can appreciate those kind of thoughts. But that's not the same thing as knowing the true and the living God. Right? Recognizing that God, there must be power, there must be an entity, there must be being, there must be personality to give rise to being and personality and, all, and life and all that we enjoy. Right? I think that's a, a reasonable surmisal. But it's not the same thing as knowing the true and the living God. To know the true and the living God, we know him through the one he has sent. Jesus, his Christ. Jesus, his Messiah. He sent his Son to reveal himself unto salvation. Not just to reveal himself in nature, and we can read that in Romans chapter 1 and other places, that the things that can be known about God are clearly expressed. But because of our wickedness and sinfulness, we suppress the knowledge of God. Right, so unbelievers know God exists. Every single one of them knows it because they're made in his image. And, and, and nature all around them and in them proclaims the God of heaven and earth. But to know God, not just to know of him, not just to surmise his existence uh, from this or that argument, but to know God is to know the one whom he has sent. Jesus said, if you, you would have known the Father if you knew me. To see me is to see the Father. I'm the one who has come to represent the triune God and redeem wicked and sinful men who know the triune God exists, but who in their own perverted sinfulness suppress that knowledge. So as we look at our text here in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 2 and 3 real quick. Verse 2 has this blessing, May the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus our Lord, and then verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. We're, we're starting with knowledge to begin with here. Right? There's a blessing that there would be an increase in knowledge and that, that God has revealed Himself, even His own glory and excellence, um, and, uh, and that that's a knowledge that we've been called to. Same thing down in verse 8. Look down at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So those three usages of the word knowledge are different from the word that's there in verse 5, which is something, uh, uh, an attribute that's to be added, a characteristic that's to be added. 
Okay, and there, this compound word. The basic word in Greek for knowledge is gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis. Uh, in time, and we, when we use the word, we drop off the sound of the G and just say gnosis or gnostics uh, or things like that. We don't say it, but the basic word for knowledge is gnosis in Greek. And then there's a prefix that's added to it sometimes, epi, E-P-I, so you've got epigenosis, which is a more... Uh, a more experiential or intimate sort of knowledge often. It has, it has kind of a heightened sense of it. So in verses 2, 3, and 8, there's that heightened sense of it, the epigenosis, uh, where you have this knowledge, this experiential, real knowledge of the true and living God. And you're going to add some knowledge to that as well. And so the verse, just mentioning that the word in verse 5 there for knowledge is related to, but not the same thing as verses 2 and 3 and 8, which are the framework of this whole thing of building our faith. All that to say, in order to grow our faith, to build our faith, we have to have it to begin with. In order to have faith to begin with, we have to have some knowledge of God. We have to kind of know who He is and what He's revealed Himself to be, particularly in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you have, you know, the, the theology proper, you know, aspects of your systematic theology worked out and understand the simplicity of God and how persons and being are related. That's, that's, that's theological knowledge to build. It is knowledge of the true and living God, the one who is the consuming fire who has created all things and who has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem rebels and sinners that they should be his children. That's that basic knowledge of God, the trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and serve him. And as we serve him, then the, then the call comes, okay, Christian, now build your faith. Or as another part where Paul likes to say, grow up, mature in your faith. Don't be as a child anymore but be as a man, be as an adult, and have a mature faith that you've considered and that you've worked out some of the details and you've pressed into God. And you'll find as you do it that it's very much you doing it. God gives the gift of, of Christ-likeness and of sanctification of growth and grace, but he does it, even as we see here in this text, by our very efforts in your very life, by your decisions and your, your, you know, what you're impelled to do or compelled to do. Uh, all of these things tie into your Christian life and the growth of it. It doesn't happen apart from you. By and large, it happens through you by the gifts of the Spirit of God and and God's power at work in us. So knowing God is one thing, and growing in Him is an additional thing. And so right here, right now, I tell you, Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God. God Himself become flesh to redeem fleshly sinners not just to redeem us, but I think we have what might be the most profound note in the entire Bible on soteriology or the doctrines of salvation to draw us into the divine nature. Just kind of thrown out here at the beginning of this epistle. It's like, oh, God called us to share in himself, in his very own nature, as, insofar as creatures are ever able to share in the nature of the uncreated. Insofar as finite creatures are ever able to share in the infinite, uncreated nature of God. But that's what he's done in Jesus Christ, is reached out to us, taken on our flesh, taken on our weaknesses in the flesh, without taking on our sin. And says, you sinners, come in Christ. Come in the very broken body and shed blood of Christ unto God himself, into the divine nature, into fellowship with the triune God eternally. Putting off the wickedness of this world into the purity of God. That is what we're doing here. And so knowing God is being brought into that world and signified and applied to us in baptism. 
Baptism is the sign of being taken out of this world and being brought into Christ Jesus, into his salvation, into his kingdom, and into his people. And then, of course, we have the Lord's Supper, which is a sustenance. We grow in that. We need to be fed. That's the same thing, the same dynamics are at play here. You have to know the triune God through Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And as you know him, baptism, then you now feed upon him and grow in him, the Lord's Supper and and the ministry of the word that way as well. So first, quickly, the precious promises, the great and precious promises of our God. Verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, is there something that pertains to life and godliness that's not given by the power of God? Is there something, for example, that you supply? Or that I supply? Because he's going to get into things that we're doing here. He's calling us to build and work. But he starts off saying, recognize this. Everything you need in life and godliness is given to you by the power of God. God gives it to you. So Peter is quite Pauline in this, saying it's all about grace. It's all about the power of God. Yeah, it's going to work in us so that we will undo this mysterious reality of how God has made us and works with us, to be sure. That's all coming. But let's not forget that it's the power of God and nothing else and no one else that gives us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Another way of saying this shortly is salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is God's. He gives it. It's by his power, top to bottom. But he also moves us then into his own glory and excellence. Because he has given to us great and very precious promises by which we move and grow in Christ Jesus. So this, this divine power has revealed his own glory and excellence. And by that he's given us some very great and precious promises. Now, the Bible is where you go to look for those promises. Right? It's the word of God that you appeal to. So where are the, where are the promises? Where are these, these, these great and very precious promises, or great, very precious and great promises? Either way, uh, where, where do you find them? And the answer is the Scripture, Christian. You look to the Scripture. You look to the word of God because it's in Christ Jesus that all the promises of God are yes and amen. Right? So we can look to the promises to ancient Israel, and in Christ we can say, that's mine. Because I'm in Christ. Now, it might not be to us in the exact same way that it was to ancient Israel, but the people of God and the promises of God are united in Christ Jesus. So we access all of the promises of God through Jesus our Lord. And here, the words of Jesus our Lord right now, publishing himself some of these great and very precious promises. This is from John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's a promise right there. Whoever comes to Jesus shall not hunger nor thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. He's speaking, of course, to the Jews who have seen him and eaten of that food. Right? Hey, man, give us some more food. This guy, Jesus, is is hooking us up with a a bunch of food. And they love that. And he says, well, you saw that, but you didn't believe. You saw the sign. You ate of the sign. But your hearts weren't open to understand the sign. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's some simple words right there. With a profound and very great promise. Christ says, if you come to me, I'll receive you and I'll never cast you out. I won't let you go. And you can read John 6 and see a number of times. The Father is greater than all. No one can take you out of his hands. 
These are promises of God to you. Do you believe them? Do you hear them? These are the precious and very great promises you've given us by which we're going to build our faith. Okay? It's the power of God that gives rise by His character to these promises on which we, you know, onto which we grab so that we can build our faith. So the power of God is manifested through these promises in His Word. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing at all of, of what my Father has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Got some very pointed words by Jesus. I'm here for this. I've come to do the will of my Father and gather the elect and lose not one of them. Not one. Jesus, or Judas is planned for. Judas is prophesied. He's the he's son that he says, well, this is gone. Here's a, here's a goner and a traitor. But Jesus says to the rest of us in him, you're mine. I won't let you go. I'll keep you. Come unto me. Rest in me. And I will keep you. And I will never let you go. And I will raise you up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. There are some great and very precious promises from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ to you, to your family, to the church. And it's our job to grab onto those promises and believe them as we grab onto those promises and make much of them, even if it kind of doesn't make sense or it feels like God's let us go or other things that we think. If we grab onto those promises and say, God is true and every man's a liar. God is true and every man's a liar. If we hang on to his promises like that, we'll find that these very characteristics we'll talk about will almost naturally, supernaturally, be given to us as we're trusting in the promises of God because it's based upon the promises of God that we grow and build our faith and all of that based upon the very power of God at work in us. Both giving us the promises and giving us the faith to receive them and the grace to repent as well. So as you hear that gospel promise, Jesus Christ gave himself up for sinners and anyone who comes in, he will in no wise cast out, but he'll keep you up. He'll keep you and raise you up the last day. Hear that with faith. Believe the words of your Lord Jesus Christ. Come out of darkness and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him. Again, the aim of sharing in the divine nature, and we read that text again. This is one that slipped my lid basically every time I read it, uh, from the first time I remember reading it right on. I say, man, Peter's saying something here that uh, is more profound than our sins are forgiven. As profound as that is. It's more profound than Jesus has poured out his Holy Spirit even into our hearts, shedding the love in our hearts. All, all that's important and profound. This tops them all because it encompasses all of them and then some. Let's read it here. I'll read, start reading verse 3 down just to the beginning of the list. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, here's the purpose, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That through these promises, published in the scripture, you may become partakers of God's own nature. And that's not just an, an imitation. We're going to kind of be like God. That's part of it. We imitate God. And we're to be God-like. But insofar as creatures are able to be incorporated into the uncreated and eternal. That's what's going on. 
We've come to be incorporated as creatures, as fallen creatures redeemed in Christ into God's own nature. It doesn't mean we become God, because creatures don't become God, Mormonism, from hell notwithstanding. Okay, that's their doctrine. As Christ is, you can be. And Christ used to be just like you are, right? This is creatures ascending to Godhood. That's Mormonism, the God-makers. This isn't that. On the other hand, we have maybe an Eastern Orthodox or you know, this doctrine of deification or theosis, um, which in some ways I really love, in other ways seems, uh, seems like it maybe stirs, uh, goes astray. You can put in really short, terse terminology of God. This is, the, I can't remember which father from the early church stated it this way, but God became man in order that man should become God. I'm like, great, that's a really pithy, short way of saying it, but it's also a way that might get you confused. Right, there's some obscurity in how, how, how brief it is. But that's what's going on here. That's what Peter, we're, so we're not talking about humans just simply being, you know, like losing their identity and going and becoming God, you know, being absorbed, as it were, into divinity or some kind of, again, like that's almost like a Buddhist idea of losing your own individuality into something else. That's not it. God's kept us as individuals, brought us into a body, and brought us into fellowship with himself. And insofar as humans, redeemed humans, who are, who are finite and everything else, can be a part of the divine nature, that's how far we're in. How, how much incarnation did Jesus have? He was fully man, very man of very man, so that we could be incorporated into the Godhead as creatures in the body, as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's, that's what's saying here. That's what, that's what Peter is saying, that through the very great promises of Christ, we may become partakers, have koinonia, have that fellowship with the divine nature. Oh, Christian, marvel at that. It might be the very most profound text in the whole of the Bible, and therefore the whole of all of literature, to say that we are partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruptions of the world through, fresh, through our flesh and the lusts of our flesh. God calls us to holiness unto himself to be like Him, to enjoy Him, to have fellowship with Him, to be incorporated into Him through Christ, and therefore to turn our backs on the wickedness of the world, the ways of this world, the thinking of this world, and the lifestyles that are associated with that as well. So as we hang on to the power of God through these very great promises that He's given us, then we're to be diligent. Look at verse 5. Uh, for this very reason that you're being brought into the, you know, being incorporated into the fellowship of God and being taken out of the lusts and wickedness of the world, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Think of something in your life where you have spared no effort to grow in something, to add to something. I can think of guitar playing to some books reading, or just different things in my life where I've just kind of poured myself into something, like, uh, no, like, and I've told this to you a hundred times, uh, no one had to tell me to practice the guitar. No one had to tell me, hey, you know, why don't you take some time every day and just practice? They probably had to tell me, why don't you do something else, right? Why don't you get busy doing other things that might be more valuable in your life than playing the guitar? No one had to tell me to practice. I was dedicated to practicing it. And maybe to the point of idolatry, when it comes down to it, is God, maybe not. But anyway, just, that's an example for me, and you have your own examples of things that you're just so interested in. Your heart's so drawn to them. No one needs to tell you. Hey, go figure this thing out. You're already 100 miles ahead of them figuring it out. You know, you're working hard. That's like this. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Now, Christian, that is convicting. Because the truth of it is, we make pretty insignificant efforts. Oftentimes, we make pretty insignificant efforts to add to our faith, to build our faith. Right? And it's, that's, we start where we are. 
And we say, okay, well, Lord, forgive me for being weak and, 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 and not really uh, making every effort, making a, a concerted effort to build my faith. But God, grant that to me. Give me the desire to build my faith. Give, give us the desire together to build our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to make every effort at it. Diligence in supplementing and growing our faith is really a centerpiece of the Christian life, being diligent after it. And the word diligence here has something of eagerness, earnestness, diligence, willingness, and zeal. Is that, does that characterize your Christian life and your growth in the Lord? And insofar as it doesn't, Christian repent. Because that's the word of God calls you to. is diligent, zeal, and growing in the Lord. And insofar as you find that in your life, praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for giving me diligence and zeal in pursuing your name. And if, again, if you're like me, you'll find there are seasons and times and ups and downs and waxing and waning of all this because we're inconsistent. God himself, however, is eternally consistent and will give this kind of grace to those who ask. So let us be those who seek and ask of our God the personal and a corporate responsibility involved here. Right? So you as an individual Christian are required by God to make every effort to build your faith up. But we do that together as well. It's not just individually done. It's done as a body. It's done together. And that can be done as husband and wife as well, and as families, the children, and, but also the parts of the body as we come together. And some of the aspects here, before we get to Peter's list of characteristics to add, Think of maybe some of the, what it is to add, what it is to be diligent and do these things, supplementing our faith. So from a personal and a corporate responsibility, these things at least are included prayer. We should pray that God would give us the grace to build our faith. Confession, that we confess our sins, confess our weaknesses, confess our laziness. You've got to confess the sin and get it out of the way before you can grow in the righteousness in its place. Seeking the Lord, opening the scriptures, and, uh, and, and seeking the Lord in discussions, making plans to grow. What's your plan? What's your plan to grow in the Lord? And that could be, hey, i got a Bible reading plan. Good. It's a good start. There are other things to do as well. There are other things that you should map out and plan ahead of time. And, of course, finally executing those things with consistency, with accountability, and all these different areas. These are tools and ways to kind of, for us to build our faith with these, uh, these seven virtues that Peter, that Peter gives us. So prayer, confession, seeking the Lord, making plans, and being consistent in our execution of those plans by the mercies of the Lord. Okay, so here are the seven virtues. There are seven virtues mentioned here. Seven is a, how shall we say, suggestive number uh, in the Bible, at very least. Um, so we have these seven virtues that, that, that Peter says, hey, make every effort to supplement your faith, to build your faith up with these seven. And then he kind of gives them an order, right? There's an order to them. And that can be kind of hard to figure out. That's something we spend a good deal of time at camp, or at least I spend a good deal of time at camp, trying to figure out the order. How does this add to that? And what's the, what's the additive part? Because you kind of, especially with godliness, kind of stuck in the middle. That's the weird one to me. I'm like, why is godliness stuck in the middle? Um, more on that some other time. But there's, there are these seven virtues, and they're in some sort of order, and we're to have and be increasing in all of them. Okay? Christian, you're to have all of these virtues, and you're to be increasing in them. And if you have them and are increasing, you'll find that you're not idle in your Christian walk, and you're not unfruitful, as we'll get to in a moment, in your Christian walk. But first, these seven, I'll just say the words and maybe say a couple words that are similar, right? kind of synonyms, and help you understand this list a little bit as you're seeking the Lord's face as we go in prayer to seek these particular virtues that we should add them, we should build our faith and supplement our faith with them. So first, to faith is added excellence. 
or maybe virtue, as it says in whatever translation you happen to have in front of you. And this, we might say, is the pursuit of a virtuous life, a well-lived life, excellence in the things that you do. Right? The, uh, the work that you do, Christian, is a work unto God, and it should be done excellently. If God calls you to do something, do it. Put your heart in there. Get it done. Do it well. Pursue excellence in your life. Pursue that kind of virtue. I think that's what the word means there. So to, to your faith, you're to add kind of a work ethic, a way of understanding what your work is, to whom it is, and how you're going to offer yourself. You're going to be virtuous. You're going to, you're going to pursue excellence in these v- different aspects of life. To excellence, you're to add knowledge. And as I said before, there's the epigenosis, which is this kind of knowledge of God that you're operating in to begin with as a Christian. But to that, you're to add in gnosis. You're to add in knowledge. And, of course, that goes in all directions. Knowledge goes in all directions. And so for all of us, we have different interests in life, different, different things we can kind of focus on, our minds drift toward. And it should be like that. There's a, you know, a vast, a vast, knowledge out there to be had in every subject and every discipline. And we should be pursuing that. And I think as students, you know, they, you know the whole thing was kind of geared toward uh, you know, younger folks, but uh, not just to get s- some specific knowledge in the field that you're interested in, certainly that, but to have broad knowledge in as many fields as you can. To, to, to be a generalist and understand the world as best you can. And then, of course, to focus in on things that are of interest as well. So to, go, to grow in knowledge doesn't just mean to know the Bible. It doesn't just mean to know God and know theology, though, of course, as we pursue God, we pursue everything because God made everything. Right? So the world that God has made, including the vast knowledge involved in all of it, is ours, Christian. It's ours to have. It's ours to get. Right? So be diligent in your seeking of knowledge uh, altogether, generally speaking, but also and specifically of the Word of God, knowing God himself and growing in knowledge of him. To that knowledge we're to add self-control. Uh, this was the, maybe the more m- most memorable sermon at camp because Pastor Pine did it, and he had, uh, he had an egg crate or an egg carton that he put. He said, well, you know, there's a dozen egg holes, right? And he kind of put in the different things in life and said that the idea of self-control here is to have each of these parts of life, and he had all kinds of parts of life, uh, it says in the right place, in the right amount, in the right proportions of one another. He says this is self-control, right? not getting out of control and, and having too much of one thing or mixing it all up, but having the right things in the right places in your life. So to your knowledge, you're to add self-control. Having the right things in the right places and knowing this, Christian, that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And we need self-control in our, in our knowledge. To self-control, we add steadfastness. Uh, this is like a patient endurance or a perseverance. The Christian life is, is, is the long haul. You need to be patient through it. And sometimes the process of sanctification, the process of becoming Christ-like is excruciatingly slow and even depressing. It's like, man, I was struggling with this sin 30 years ago, and I'm still struggling with it today. Although, I think if we look at it, we say, not the same way. There have been modifications. But nonetheless, our flesh is our flesh, and the world is the world, and the devil is the devil, and Christ is overcoming all of it. But we need patience. We need to be patient and steadfast as we go about our Christian life. To that steadfastness, we add godliness. Godliness means being devout, being committed unto God, uh, being imitators of God. And so just from our own hearts individually, loving the Lord. You know, we're, just, we're not just doing these things, we're not just growing in knowledge and, and, and self-control and steadfastness, but loving God. 
loving the Lord, being devout unto Him. And as we love the Lord, then we add the next one on, which is the love of the brethren. And we don't just love God, we love the brothers. And then, of course, the word there is Philadelphia. Philos being love and Adelphos being brother, just like the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. So the, the, the second highest virtue here is loving the brethren. Having loved and devoted ourselves to God, we therefore love the body of Christ. With brotherly affection, brotherly love, and of course the highest, the highest virtue, which is of course the very highest of Christian virtues altogether, is love. The capstone of all these, all these characteristics by which and with which you're supposed to build your faith, you're to focus on these things and supplement your faith with them, the greatest of them all, is love. We think of the great three Christian virtues mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. Faith is of use, to be sure. And hope is of use, but not forever. Because they will fade away as Christ fully redeems us and says, we don't need faith anymore. Not in the same sense we need it now. And we have no hope because our hopes manifest in front of us. Who needs hope when you're living it? But what we're going to be living is love. We will always have love. And love is the great cardinal Christian virtue. And that, of course, is the word agape. Right? The, the, the great love of God. The great and encompassing love of God that we now have for him and for his people and even for the world. We turn around in Christ-likeness. So, Christian, repent and step forward in Christ. Build your faith. Here are the virtues you should labor diligently to add to your faith. Here's a little list of them, the seven of them. And so may God grant it to us to supplement our faith. I take, think about supplements. I don't know who takes vitamin supplements, but the idea is to get some nutrients in you and so on that you'd get from these supplements that you don't get from your ordinary diet. Okay, well, you have faith. Great. You have this knowledge of God. You're in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Now, grow up. Make every effort to build your faith and grow in Christ Jesus. Bodily exercises, a little benefit. You can see that from the pastors thinking of camp. We have the, the contingency of the Russians. They're all buff and they're all strong. They're all these muscle-bound guys. And all the pastors are fat. Um, <laughs> except for, like, a couple of Chris Winches. Um, but it's like, well, you see the pastors are not devoted to uh, physical, you know, uh, prowess and, and, and bodybuilding. Uh, but we read the scriptures and say, you know, maybe we should be more. But that's fine. Your, your bodies will wax old and the things that you're able, used to be able to do, you're not going to be able to do them, right? There's, there's that reality of growing old. But exercise in godliness and growing in the Lord is of much benefit in every way. We think of it almost the opposite. Man, if I could just get buff and fit, that would be much benefit in every way. And, oh, yeah, those spiritual exercises, those are nice to the spiritual life. Not knowing that the spiritual life is your life. And this physical thing is transient and will die, and God will bring it back. And in the resurrected body, will I still be fat? You'll all find out, and so will I. I don't know how it's going to go. But the point is, grow in Christ Jesus. Grow in Him. And make every effort to add to your faith these virtues. And if you do so, like we'll just talk, you'll never fall. This is the way forward. This is the way toward your heavenly reward. Press into it and press into Christ Jesus. So repent of your laziness and start working harder by God's mercy and by God's grace. And not all toward... A uh, fruitful faith. A fruitful faith. And so after the list, then, after verse 7, we get to verse 8. I'll read this last little section. For if these qualities, the seven virtues that were just mentioned, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful 
in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in that knowledge that you have in Christ, you're in Him, that epigenosis, you're in Christ, there's a way to be fruitful and idle in it. Or, I'm sorry, fruitless and idle in it. But there's also a way to be fruitful and, and, and full of action in it as well. And that's what Peter is getting at. I'll read that again. Whoever, uh, for these, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from all his former sins. We'll pick up verse 10 in a moment. So if these qualities, and we're talking about, you know, again, adding uh, virtue or excellence and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love, adding those things, if those are yours, and they're increasing. Now, you might remember Tim Hart's prayers, but he would often pray for increasing something, right? Increasing strength or health. And, uh, and not just pray for strength, but pray for increasing strength. Pray for increasing health. Well, that's, this, that's a very biblical notion that we're, it's never enough to say, hey, I have some self-control. Boom, got it. Plant my flag on it, good. So it's my property now and whatever else. Not like that. No, you're never content as a Christian with where you are. There's always more to go. There's more of God to press into. There's more of sin to repent of. There's more knowledge to, to gain and understand and serve God with. Uh, we're, we're never content. We're always growing in Christ. One analogy I use is the kind of normal analogy I think of preachers of a, of a you know a boat or a vessel or even use a person, a person bobbing in the water of a stream, and if they make no efforts, they just go downstream, right? If there's no effort made to go upstream, they're just simply going to go downstream, and it's that way to some degree in our Christian life as well. The world, the flesh, and the devil are pushing one direction, and in godliness, we're going the other. We're swimming this way, and it takes the effort to do that, and we must be diligent to put that effort in. If we're idle we'll float downstream. Right? It's not like we're going to stay in the same place. So if we have these qualities and they're increasing, we're growing in the Lord, we'll find that it makes us so that we're not idle and not unfruitful. As an image of uh, the idleness, it occurred to me and saw a number of work crews as we were driving back. Uh, work crews on the, on the road are always fun to watch um, because most of the time you happen to see them. You know, for that five seconds you see them, um, like, none of them are working, right? <laughs> Nobody over there is working. There's one guy who's got a shovel looking down. Everyone else is talking. Um, and the worst of it is, when they are working, there's one, and usually, well, at least they're mostly ladies when I see them, the flaggers, right? Uh, that is an idle job. Okay, you're sitting there, and you've got two sides of that sign, and you've got a radio, and you just, that's, all, that's your work all day long, right? Uh, that's a pretty idle job. Compared to the guy behind you who's got the 50 or 70-pound jackhammer, that's not idle work. He's working hard back there. Right? So that's, that's a distinction of this work. So if you have these qualities, if you're pursuing these qualities, and God's giving them to you increasingly, you will not be idle. You're not going to be just lollygagging around in your life, in your Christian life. You'll be active. And you won't be unfruitful. You won't be one of those trees that you, you know, the owner has put time into and pruned and put effort into and no fruit comes. But like a tree that brings forth abundant fruit. That's the kind of Christian life that God has for us, is not idle, but active, engaged, interested, and fruitful. And if you have these qualities and they're increasing, that's the kind of Christian life you should expect. But without these qualities, what's the image that Peter gives us? Your eyesight's so bad, and we got bad eyesight, 
Kai probably does. He's got glasses on. <laughs> I, I, I was putting glasses on on the drive there. I'm like, man, I should wear these more often. I can see stuff, you know? Um, and my eyes aren't even that bad. So I think seminary ruined them. Uh, but, you know, people have terrible eyesight to the point of being blind, you know? Where is the thing? Man, it's right in front of you. Can't you see? It's right there. No, I can't see. That's spiritually you get that way. Christians can get that way where they, have, they are blind. They're so unpracticed in Christian virtue. And the growth in Christ is practicing Christian virtue, growing in the Lord actively. That without that, we go blind. And we go blind to the point where we utterly forget that we've been cleansed from our sins. When God brought us out of darkness into his, the kingdom of his dear son, we forget about it. We start to ignore it. We, we pay more attention to other things and that drifts, drifts away from us. So Christians, you are the type to grow in these qualities. And in them, that the Lord would give you not a spirit of idleness and unfruitfulness, but rather vigor and fruitfulness in his kingdom. And as God's very, going back to that powerful work, he's given to us by his power all things pertaining to life and godliness, including everything on this list. God's power that's giving it. So recognize that, and again, that has to guide your prayer in your life, that God gives these gifts. He doesn't just say, make every effort to add to it, and that's all he says. He says, you make every effort to add to it, and you know that it's by my power that you're doing it. Okay, well, now we have a context that we can operate. God must give this thing, we must beg God for it, and we must pursue it. That's Calvinism, by the way. Not this silly, stupid character I keep hearing and keep saying, God does everything and you do nothing. So, okay, well, get out and shut up. It has nothing to do with any historic Calvinism that I've read, and I've read plenty of it. I've read all of it, but I've read plenty of it. God says, it's my power at work, it's my sovereignty, now get busy. And as you get busy, as you serve the Lord, as you put off the, the sins that ensnare you, as you press into these Christian virtues, you'll find, as you do that, you have one word to say to God, thanks. God has worked in you both to will and to do. But as we will and do, that's the purpose. God's not redeemed us to leave us in our sin, but that we should grow, and we should be more and more like Christ. We should grow in godliness. So it's God's preserving power that's at work through all of this, all of our efforts and all of our diligence. And that's what we see in verses 10 and following. Let's read the the last part of this text. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. Your calling, of course, is the Holy Spirit's work in you that has brought you out of death into life. That is ministered to us by baptism and signified by baptism. We've been reborn. We've been taken out of darkness into light, out of Satan's kingdom, into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That's your calling. That's what that means. So, So be diligent to... To confirm your calling. Has God called you out of darkness? You might say, well, I don't know, Pastor. I haven't had an experience like this guy over here, you know, who was terrible, 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 and then God called him, and suddenly he's a Christian, and everyone says, I haven't had that. It's kind of been more subtle or, or more gradual or something in my life, especially as a covenant child. I think it's, it can be hard to distinguish sometimes how and when God calls us, and maybe it happens over a period of time, or maybe it happens all at once, like the Apostle Paul, who himself was a covenant child. But, like I said before, hard knocks for hard cases. Saul was a hard case. God knocked him hard. You want that? Go for it. Little Christians, go for it. You want God to knock you really hard? Well, he'll do it. But, if you want God in his gentleness to 
to move you along, you draw near to God. You repent as it's given to you. And we, we seek the calling of God, that God would call us. That he would show us Christ and show us our own wickedness. Make us despise ourselves and love Christ and serve Him. And I think that comes by degrees and chapters in our lives as well. But that's the calling of God. The election of God, of course, is the eternal choice. How do you work out your election? Just like this. You trust God's promises. You trust His power. You try to grow and do what He calls you to do. And that's the life of the elect. That's what, that's what the fruit of election is. Is that you would know Christ and be conformed to Him all the way to the end. All the way to finally being conformed to the image of Christ in glory as well. So these things are, are right in front of us and we need to recognize God's power in them and our responsibility in them as well. So do you read this text and walk away thinking, well, you know, God does everything and I do nothing. Is that it? I can't change. I can't do anything, Pastor. God's got to do it in me. So I know God's got to do it in you. But that doesn't mean that you have nothing to do. You're to make every effort to add to your faith these things. Are you making every effort? Then close your mouth and quit telling me that you are waiting on God. And get busy. And when you find that in your efforts it's God who's worked in you to do that, then you say, Pastor, I see how it works now. I see how it works. There are times when truly we wait on God. There are times. But when it comes down to like hating our own sin, fighting our own sin, and pressing into righteousness, waiting is not really the name of the game. Action is the name of the game, and thanksgiving is the name of the game, because God says, get after it. Make every effort to add these things to your faith, and make every effort to uh, make your calling and your election sure. And if you do these things, there's a promise here, one of these great and precious promises, you'll never fall. This is the way of salvation. Now, we stumble in it all the time. We're sinners, and we stumble in this, to be sure. Christ lifts us up, and Christ forgives us, and we keep moving on the straight and the narrow toward everlasting life, when all these things will bring in their great fruition and fruitfulness and glory in the new heavens and the new earth. So, building projects need the right materials. You've got to have the right stuff there to make your building or whatever you're constructing. Uh, building projects need the right materials, and your faith is similar. To build your faith, to build you up in Christ, you need the right materials. You have to have the right things in hand. And, of course, the first thing in hand is knowledge of God himself. That the triune God has sent his son, not spared him, but sent him all the way to the cursed death of the cross for you and for me. And that we don't deserve it. Hands down. No question. There's no desert on my side for God to say, hey, I want you to be my child. I'm going to love you for eternity. I'm going to love you so much I'm going to make you holy. That's all God's grace. The building project needs to start there. We have nothing to offer God. It's all of His power, all of His grace. And as we find that grace at work in us then, the call then is Christian, get busy. Make every effort. Make every effort on a daily basis to build your faith because that really is your life. You build your business every day? Sure. You build your family every day? Sure. You build your body every day? Wash it or whatever. Not necessarily lift the weights like the Russians. But yeah, we take care of all these things. You build your faith every day. It's the center of everything, the centerpiece of your very life. And in doing that, in building our faith daily, we compound the character. We, we, use these, we, we build in and grow in these characteristics and virtues that Peter has mentioned. And in doing so then, as we grab onto the promises of God, as we, as we build our Christian faith by His grace, we find that we're not idle. 
We're vigorous. We're not unfruitful. God's bearing fruit in our lives, in our personal lives, and in the lives of people around us. And we're on the very powerful path to eternal life, to the fullness of this thing that Christ has started in us in Christian, that he will not overlook to complete, but is faithful to complete the work that he has started in us. So from beginning to end, let us trust and obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be in Christ and also to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Let's build our faith together. Amen.